Robert O'Brien, you were the 27th National Security Advisor, serving between 2019 to 21. I've just noticed um, that you are also the fifth National Security Advisor to come on this show. Uh, I wonder if you could justify the role of National Security Advisor. We didn't have one in Britain for a long time. Um, we assumed that the role could be done by the chief of the Joint Intelligence Committee, the Foreign Secretary and the Defence uh, Secretary all sort of coming together. Um, is there really a, uh, um, a role for somebody who is going to be an extra uh, voice in the president's ear? Well, I think the idea of the National Security Advisor in the United States, and it's a, a role that's developed over the years since the National Security Act of 1948, I believe, where the National Security Advisor was not actually set forth by statute, but developed out of that uh, that regime, is to serve as a principal foreign policy advisor and National Security Advisor to the President. And, and the, the you're, you're not aligned. You don't have line authority as National Security Advisor. You're not. You don't have a cabinet department. You don't have a. Uh, you don't have uh, line authority over the military or the intelligence community. But what you do have is you have convening authority. You can use the power of the presidency in the White House to bring together the principal advisors of the president from the cabinet departments, the agencies, pull them together. And the idea is to get the best advice and counsel from them and, and, you know, synthesize it and get it to the president of the United States. And if you can develop through a series of committee meetings and a process that starts at a, at a like an assistant secretary level of, of convening the agencies together, the IC, the treasury department, the commerce department, the defense department, the state department, all, all the agencies that would be involved in a national security issue. Uh, you start at the assistant secretary level at the policy coordination committee meeting, move it up to a deputies committee meeting, and then get to a principals committee meeting where you have actually convene the cabinet secretaries in the situation room and and try and figure out you know how the U.S. is going to respond to a, 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 either a potential crisis or a current crisis or a long-term challenge or threat. And of course, that's that's one of the the roles of the national security advisors to make sure that the the urgent and the things that are happening today don't distract us from what we need to be looking at five, 10, 20 years down the road as a country. And you have to balance out uh, the crisis du jour with, with our long-term interests and, and the policies that we need to put in place to secure our America's safety and, and freedom and our, our way of life over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years. And so there's, all, there's that tension and there's a tension between the different departments and the different advice that you know, these leaders want to give the president and trying to come to a consensus. And if you can't get a consensus, you know, bringing those different views to the president and letting him make as the, the elected leader of the free world, like the elected leader of the, the country or the, of America, is to get the president to make a decision on a particular policy issue and then make sure it's implemented. So it's really a convening authority as national security advisor. And then it's to, to try and pull together all the different uh, agencies that are relevant to a specific issue and, and then make sure the president gets the best options and counsel advice he can. And I think the best way to do that is to be the honest broker, not, not to wear your policy preferences on your sleeve. And we all come to the job with our you know, policy preferences and our, our own ideas about it, various issues. But I think the idea is the, the, the best practice is to let the uh, the cabinet secretaries and department heads, you know, come to the president with their, their various views and and let him make a decision, and then you, you're you're there to uh, be at his sounding board and, and to give him advice, hopefully in private, and be the last person he talks to to help him 
make the decisions he's got to make or she's got to make eventually. Well, eventually we'll have a she. We're a little bit behind uh, the UK on that front, Andrew. We don't I haven't had a female president yet, but I, I assume that's coming in the not too distant future. Well, I think you've justified your role um, and, and your presence on this show very well in that case. Um, born in Los Angeles, you have a P, uh, sorry, a BA in political science from UCLA. Uh, then you went on to the School of Law at Berkeley. Berkeley, as you uh, pronounce it. Um, history is obviously very important, both with politics and with uh, law. Who taught you history? So I, I had a couple of great uh, uh, history professors uh, and, and political science professors, Leo Snowis at, uh, at UCLA and uh, uh, Hugh Midgley at uh, a semester that I did up at BYU, although he was a political scientist. Uh, but I, I, look, I, I was probably a little deficient on my, my history courses uh, Although I, I took all the relevant classes you needed to, but so I, I try to supplement it with uh, my own reading. So if you, you know, if you look at the the people that taught me, it would be you know uh, Gibbons and and Declan and Fall and uh, Macaulay with the history of the UK. Uh, you know some of the top writers in the UK in the US, uh, McCollum and, and Meacham and. Uh, our historians and a, a guy named uh, Andrew Roberts uh, who wrote uh, a couple of uh, terrific biographies on Churchill and Napoleon, among others. Uh, Max Hastings, of course, on military history. So, you know, I, I was, you know, had, had great faculties in political science and history at both UCLA and and professors of law who were informed by history at Berkeley. But uh, I tried to, to supplement it with, uh, with a lot of reading on my own. And uh, I happen to know, thank you for mentioning uh, Churchill, that you have a pretty impressive Churchill collection um, of his uh, first editions and various other um, uh, various other artefacts. And uh, tell us a little bit about your, your Churchill mania, because you obviously share it with me. Well, look, I mean, you, you, I, I grew up in kind of the, the shadow of the uh, of World War Two with uh, grandparents and uh, and parents who were born in that period. And of course, you know, we, we had the great leaders. We had Churchill and Eisenhower and, and Roosevelt and, and Churchill just had such a special place for Americans. You know, we, we claim him as half ours uh, through his mom. And uh, he made that, that great uh, aside when he addressed Congress for the, uh, the first time in, in 41, where he said, if he, if his father had been American and his, his mother had been British, maybe he would have gotten there on his own, uh, <laughs> which was a, a ter terrific uh, icebreaker for the, uh, the the speech. But, you know, look, he, he stood up against uh, fascism and, and you know, before that fascism and communism and, and imperial Japan and, and was literally on his own and had very few resources uh, for a period of time and uh, and rallied the free world, deployed the English language as its uh, you know primary weapon and, and kept a a commonwealth and an empire together to, to go up against some of the darkest uh, but most advanced mil military machine in, in history. And uh, he, he prevailed and, and bought time for America to, to figure out what it needed to do. And, and uh, we got in the war and, and ultimately prevailed. But for a year or two there, it was, uh, you know, Churchill was standing up for, for all the things we believe in, freedom, liberty, and our way of life against, uh, you know, the, the monsters in Berlin. And uh, that, that's something that, I, the, it's a debt of gratitude the world should should owe Churchill, but also the British people for being so stalwart at a, a period of time when it would have been very very easy to to cut a separate piece and uh, and and try and uh, preserve what they could. Instead, they they fought the Nazis and 
and prevailed. And, and then Churchill was obviously very prescient with the Cold War, uh, seeing the dangers of Soviet communism and uh, and standing up with his great speech and in, in Missouri and uh, in Fulton and and, uh, you know, just uh, along with, you know, from an American point of view, George Washington and uh, and Lincoln and uh, Churchill is one of, you know, one of the three or four people that preserve liberty and in, in our way of life. And that's that, that, that interested me. And, of course, going to the London and visiting Chartwell and Blenheim and uh, the cabinet war rooms. It's hard not to, uh, you know, get a little enthusiastic about Sir Winston. You've had an immensely varied career, haven't you? Um, at the United Nations Compensation Commission in Geneva, you were a major on the Judge Advocate General's Corps. Uh, you were a U.S. representative at the United Nations General Assembly. Then between 2018 and 19, you were special presidential envoy for hostage affairs with the rank of ambassador. Um these seem to be very disparate. Uh, did you have a, a particular career path and you fitted all these in or or did you just uh, go from from extraordinary job to extraordinary job? Well, you know, I, I talk to a lot of young people, Andrew, like you do, and uh, they'll ask, how do you become national security advisor? And, uh, uh, you know, there, there, there's no real career path to it, I, I don't think, at least there wasn't in my case. Uh, the predominant thing I've done in my life is I've been a lawyer. I've been a litigator in in courts in in California and and uh, international arbitration tribunals around the world. Uh, but I've, I've and I've had to earn a living for my family. And uh, I, but I've always had an interest in in foreign policy, and national security, and I've had the opportunity and been called upon from time to time by different administrations to to come in and help. And uh, and it's been varied. But I I think the 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 diversity of the experiences I've had, whether it was in Geneva. Which was a, a great uh, a commission deciding claims, more of a legal position deciding claims against Iraq, rising out of Gulf One, uh, learning the Middle East from that perspective, uh, spending time in Afghanistan as the uh, co-chair of the State Department Rule of Law program there for for several years under both the the Bush and Obama administrations, uh, the Cultural Property Advisory Committee dealing with memorandums of understanding between the U.S. and uh, partner nations around the world to stop the trafficking of antiquities. Uh, so it's, it's been relatively varied. Obviously at the UN, you touch on every issue that, uh, that faces the world. So you're, you're really a generalist in that, that, uh, context, but probably, probably the most meaningful job I've had just from helping people was working as a hostage envoy. And you know, I, 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 that was not a, a planned position. I was supported. You know, I, I, people have asked how I became the hostage envoy it was because I was on losing presidential campaigns. And so I, I'd done a number of campaigns, two for Governor Romney and one for Scott Walker, Governor Walker. And uh, I'd supported President Trump in the general election, but wasn't part of his campaign. And I got a call about a, six months into the administration. They said, look, we've got a position that needs to be filled. We need a, we think a lawyer would do a good job for it. And it's uh, President Trump's committed to bringing Americans home who are held abroad, either wrongfully detained by foreign governments or held hostage by terrorist organizations. Uh, is that something you'd want to do? And uh, I thought about it and talked to my wife about it. I knew it would cut into my law practice. I just started a new firm, uh, left a big national firm and started a, a kind of a local Los Angeles litigation boutique with a, a partner who was a former federal judge. And so it, it wasn't convenient timing, but we, we thought about the folks who were overseas and in dungeons and jails and, and I thought, let's give it a year and see if I can have any success at it. And 
fortunately with Secretary Pompeo's backing and President Trump's backing, we we got a lot of Americans home. And uh, that's how I developed a relationship with the president and and further deepened my relationship with Secretary, Secretary Pompeo, who I'd known when he was a congressman. And uh, and one thing led to another, I became national security advisor. But but doing the job of the hostage envoy, working with the families of, of Americans who were held abroad and having to deliver to deliver tough news to them in, in some circumstances when their their loved one didn't make it home and uh but also being you know sharing in the joy of the the reunion when someone did get home uh was you know a very very special year and a half for me and uh you know I, uh, we, we got a lot of folks home but i don't focus on that i focus on the people that we didn't get home and some of them are still out there and so the uh you know we i, I always ask americans to pray for those who are who are still held abroad and uh I need to get home. You mentioned prayer. Um, you were brought up as a Roman Catholic and later became a Mormon. Uh, tell us about that. Well, it's one of those personal things, but it's a, uh, as with all religious matters, I, uh, I've got great respect and love for the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic boys' school and uh, my family's primarily Catholic, but I had friends and and uh, colleagues who were Latter-day Saints and uh uh, I spent some time at BYU as an undergraduate uh, trying to investigate the church and developed a testimony that it was the uh, restored gospel. And, uh, and so I, I joined the LDS church. It was, you know, uh, but you know, it, it's, it's, a uh, one of those things where I, where I, I see a lot of continuity in, uh, in re <coughs> Christian religions, whether it's Anglican and in, in your home country or, uh, church of England or, or the Roman Catholic church or the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. We've got to, we, we have those Judeo Christian traditions and, and values that, that inform our worldview. And, and I, I think uh, the power of prayer is a, is a, a blessing that, uh, that we have in our lives that uh, whether you're, you're Catholic or Anglican or, or Jewish or, or Muslim, whatever your re religion, uh, that it, the, 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 those values that we learn can inform our, our public life not not because you're advocating for a certain religion or sect or uh or outcome but but the, you're you're ennobled as a as a person and hopefully do a better job as a as a government official because you're informed by your faith when you meet um world leaders that you've met like um Narinda Modi and uh um Erdogan of Turkey um people who uh, at least recently don't seem to have been showing as much appreciation for religious tolerance and religious freedom does does the fact that you do have a uh, a strong personal faith um affect your your um views about people like that or not well look i i had good relations with both president erdogan and, and prime minister modi and uh they, they always treated me with a lot of respect and and i try to return the the uh that that uh Attitude. I mean, when, when you're doing diplomacy, I mean, sometimes, Andrew, as you know, there's an old saying that the art of diplomacy is saying the, the nastiest possible things in the nicest possible way. And, uh, <laughs> and I always tried to try to do that. Sometimes we had to get a little tough with our our partners and Turkey's a NATO ally. We certainly don't want to lose Turkey. But, you know, my first interaction with with the Turks was as the hostage envoy, which was a little different than my kind of a broader portfolio as national security advisor. And we were trying to get an American pastor, uh, Andrew Brunson, who was a wrongful detainee in Turkey home. Uh, and it was, uh, he was detained basically for religious reasons and, and political reasons to get leverage over us to, to let a, someone who was being, it was, it was an exile here in America to return him to Turkey. And, 
uh, that, that wasn't going to happen. And we needed to get past Brunson home. So, so we had pretty tough conversations with, with our Turkish colleagues, but uh, at the same time, we tried to keep in mind that they were NATO allies and that geopolitically, you know, Turkey, Turkey occupies a pretty important space in the globe. And we certainly didn't want, didn't want to lose quote, lose Turkey uh, as national security advisor. We had a, a number of, uh, of, of tough calls with the, with the Turks, but I always try to deal with them on uh, the basis of respect and the fact that uh, Erdogan was the was the elected leader of Turkey. We believe in democracy, and the Turks picked Erdogan in, in relatively free and fair elections. And you know, you, you, you know, a, a lot of people nowadays like to say, "Well, a country's autocratic if they they elect a leader that uh, a certain political group here doesn't like or or likes." And you know, er, Erdogan obviously. Uh, had some issues with religious freedom and, and there were a lot of complaints about that. But at the same time, you know, I thought keeping an open channel of communications with him and his national security advisor was the, the best way to resolve those and, and to try and protect the religious minorities that are in, in Turkey and, and, and give them some space to practice their religion and worship according to their faith. And, and I think we were relatively successful during our time, our time in office, but uh, you know, it was, it, it was a challenge, but personally, I got along quite well with uh, president Erdogan. And I think that allowed us to, to have some of the tougher conversations that we needed to have and, and reach some outcomes, whether it was uh, Syria or Libya or uh, uh, the Gulf Rift or uh, some of the some of the issues that were taking place with the, the Europeans and refugees. So, uh, you know, I had a good relationship with him. I think Modi is one of the is really an incredible leader, uh, and obviously there are, there are concerns about Hindu nationalism and the the rights of minorities, but they're they're also under attack from. Uh, Islamic extremists in, in India and, and they've had their own 9-11 uh, in, in uh, the capital. And so, you know, you, you, gotta, you know, you have to take those things into account. But uh, again, Modi's, you know, was overwhelmingly elected, you know, several times as a prime minister. And uh, he stood up to China. He's, he's rebuilding India's defenses. He's uh, turning India into a modern country. So, you know, there's there's good and bad with some of these leaders, but for the most part, uh, we had good relations with with both those gentlemen. You mentioned uh, Muslim fundamentalism only uh, four months or so after you were appointed to the uh, national security advisor position by President Trump um, in in the uh, January of 2020. So four months after you were appointed, um, you were amongst those taking the decision to uh, kill. Qasem Soleimani, um, the head of the Quds force, uh, which was done by drone. Tell, tell us about that. That must have been a um, um, uh, fascinating period. Well, look, I'll, I'll talk about it in generalities. It's not something I talk about specifically because there's, uh, you know, I, I've been targeted as of other leaders uh, in the country by the Iranians. Uh, I mean, the, the the general principle is that if there, there was going to be an attack on a U.S. embassy or U.S. facilities. Uh, by our adversaries, we, we weren't going to put up with another Benghazi in the Trump administration. And, and so uh, we, we took the measures necessary throughout the Trump administration to protect Americans and, and to protect our partners and allies uh, from a malign activity. And, uh, and so, so the operation you discussed uh, fell into that category, but uh, we, we, you know, whether it was Baghdadi or, uh, or others, uh, the leader of ISIS or, or other uh, actors that were seeking to do harm to America and seeking to kill Americans, uh, we were going to take actions to protect the United States of America and our citizens and, and our partners and their citizens as well. You have hopes that the Abraham Accords, which I think are 
quite widely seen as the greatest uh, foreign policy achievement of the uh, Trump um, presidency. Do you do you um, feel that they might be extended further? They were a pretty extraordinary, uh, jaw-dropping um, diplomatic breakthrough as they were. But uh, do you think there's something that uh, can be built on uh, beyond the accords themselves? Uh, so I hope so, Andrew. It, uh... It was a really a spectacular moment in in you know world history and Middle Eastern history that we had our Israeli Jewish friends coming together with our Arab colleagues and and friends and uh, and making peace. And up until the time of the Abraham Accords, there had only been two peace deals with Israel and their neighbors. One was with Egypt, and one was with Jordan, the Camp David Accords, and then the Jordan Accords. Uh, and those weren't warm pieces; they were kind of cold pieces. They were uh, security arrangements with border countries and the breakthrough with the Bahrain and the UAE and then ultimately Sudan and Morocco and, and even Kosovo, which granted is a European country, but with a Muslim majority, uh, all coming together under the rubric of the Abraham Accords to have what, what I call a warm peace, because the, the people realized that each of their countries would be better off if they had commerce and tourism and religious pilgrimages uh, available that we had, you know, Moroccan Jews who were able to go back and visit their their grandparents and great grandparents cemeteries, and at the same time we were able to have uh, Arabs from the Gulf visit the Al Aqsa Mosque and uh, visit the third most important site for or fourth most important site, depending on on who you're talking to, uh, in the Muslim world and in Jerusalem, and, and go up to the the, the Temple Mount and, and see those important mosques uh, and make pilgrimages there. That, that, those, those are unique opportunities. And uh, every time I go on a, you know, someone will show me an Instagram from, or a, a, a tweet or something from a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah that's taking place in Dubai, you know, it, it's hard to believe that there's a, a big, a big industry of, of bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs in, in, in Dubai now. And uh, I think it's wonderful to see. I think, you know, look, there's obviously a strategic reason for the Abraham Accords to uh, country strengthening themselves against Iran. Uh, and, Iran's malign activity. There's an economic uh, component with you know, the, the great banking center and wealth that's generated in the Gulf states and the, the tremendous innovation and, and tech uh, boom that's taking place in Israel and how those, you know, the, the capital markets in the in the Gulf coming together with the entrepreneurs in Israel to to progress and 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 make you know tremendous modern advances that help all of our daily lives, whether. You know, even if you're not in Israel, you, you, every computer we're using has some tech that's come out of Tel Aviv. I mean, it's probably second to Silicon Valley as an innovation center. Those things are important, but there's a, there's a there's an importance to peace itself uh, of human beings getting along, and uh, it's not just the absence of war, but it's it's promoting uh, humanity, promoting this these pilgrimages, uh, bringing people together. And I think that's maybe the you know everyone focuses on the economics and the strategic, but I think the there, there's, there's an intangible that just comes from from peace itself that is, is important to us as, as humans. And so I was you know, honored to be a part of those negotiations and, and the, the signing. And I had a chance to fly with uh, uh, Jared Kushner, who worked with me closely on the, the, the Accords. And uh, we've, we took the first commercial flight on LL from uh, Ben Gurion Airport to Abu Dhabi International Airport. And I, we, we were joined by our Israeli colleagues, Mayor Ben Shabbat, the National Security Advisor of Israel, led his delegation. And we landed and the red carpet was rolled out in Abu Dhabi and, and 
you know, sheiks and princes with their, in their bobs and dish dashes, all white and uh, were, 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 you know, a mass there to, to greet us. And uh, my good friend, John Ricolta, the ambassador to uh, the UAE from the U.S. Was, was at the foot of the plane. And so to, to be able to walk down and, and, and see that coming together between Israel and the UAE as a result of the accords on that first commercial flight, uh, which symbolized the, the accords taking shape. Was it was a special opportunity for me and something I won't forget. What um, uh, if you were security national security advisor? Let me start that again. You were national security advisor um, less than four years ago. If you were national security advisor today, what would be keeping you awake at night? What are what would your top three priorities be when it came comes to threats to the United States? I like to tell people that before I was national security advisor, I was much more intelligent on national security affairs. And, and after I left office, I, I regained all that, uh, that knowledge. Uh, <laughs> when you're in the thick of it muddling through, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're humbled by uh, both the information you're receiving and the, uh, the challenges you're facing and trying to keep your country and then uh, our allies safe. But uh, when it, when it comes to your question, not to, you know, step on Jake Sullivan, the current national security advisor and, and his views, but I think I, I think he would share them. Uh, the answer to one is China, 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 one, two, and three. I mean, China is an existential threat to our way of life, to our liberty. Uh, the, the communist, and, and I want to differentiate between the Chinese people who are amazing. And we've got terrific Chinese American immigrants here. They're they're innovative, they're ingenious, they they work hard, they they contribute to the fabric of American life. Maybe the, you know, other than, other than us Irish, they're the uh the great immigrant uh, success story in America. Uh, but, I don't but, think uh, us Anglo's have done too badly uh, in America. Uh, the, the look, our, 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 our Brits and Israeli friends and and this, you know, Latins and Italians. I mean, there's a, that's the great, <laughs> the great, the great blessing of America is we can all argue who are, you know, who's the best immigrant group here. But you know, Chinese Americans have, have done a lot for the country, and so I want to differentiate between the Communist Party, which is really a malign. Uh, Group of thugs and and the Chinese people who are hardworking and, and clever and 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 have a, a long history and and traditions of civilization that, that stretch back five thousand years, a lot longer than America. And but the Chinese Communist Party is is a a real cancer, and that uh, they're they're holding their own people down. They're committing genocide in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. They've extinguished democracy in in Hong Kong in violation of the the Sino-British Declaration which has the effect of a treaty and was lodged at the UN and, and was totally ignored and ripped up. Uh, Tibet has been taken and, and the people of Tibet are suffering at least a cultural genocide. Uh, and, and talk about lack of religious freedom with you know, what's happened with, with Buddhists in Tibet is a, is a terrible thing. We've got them threatening Taiwan, which is a wonderful democratic country uh, uh, you know, off their shore and shows that the Chinese people can you know, can engage in democracy and, and have a capitalist democratic system and, and freedom and liberty, the same as, as the British and American people. But that's the threat to the plot line of the Communist Party who of China who claim that Chinese people need to be governed by the center, by a strong hand and, and a whip hand and can't, can't be trusted to, to govern themselves. And Taiwan gives lie to that, that myth. We've seen what they, they, they've attacked the Indians on the, the line of actual control and being quite brutal uh, in their combat with uh, the Indians as they, as they attempt to take rest land away from the from India. So, you know, we, we've got a very uh, dangerous country and uh, led by a communist party that that, we, that the West has to rally and understand the, 
that this is a threat not just to the way of life of the Chinese people who are under the 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 boot of the communists, but it's a threat to our our, our very existence and how we want to live our lives. Well, I'd like to drill down on on several of those, as I imagine you'd expect. Um, uh, let's start with your mention of Hong Kong and the human rights abuses there. You, you when you were national security advisor, tried to do something about that, didn't you? You essentially threatened um, that there'd be sanctions if they continued to behave in the way that they were threatening to. Um, tell us about that. Well, that was, uh, you know, I never talk about conversations I had with the president, but uh, that was a... Uh, uh, an action that we took, that the president took, and we 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 saw the how democracy was being extinguished and how the the Sino-British Declaration was being torn up by the Chinese. And Hong Kong's a great city. I've been there both pre and post, uh, both under British rule and and after British rule. I haven't. I'm not welcome back there anymore. I was one of the U.S. officials who was sanctioned by the Chinese when we left office, so I can't go back to Hong Kong or it's a badge or of Beijing, or Beijing at this point, but. Uh, but the people of Hong Kong are great. Hong Kong is an amazing city, as you know, and uh, we, we we saw Hong Kong being destroyed and we saw the, the democracy protesters, the students being uh, abused and and beat up and bullied. And we, we intended to do something about it. So I remember we briefed the president and the president said, let's go out to the Rose Garden. And we literally walked out to the Rose Garden and, and the president, we drafted a statement and the president gave a statement and we were, I think, the first Western government to, to actually sanction a Hong Kong official uh, for the uh, the actions that they were undertaking to, to defeat their own, you know, and defeat their democracy and, and subjugate their own people. And, you know, I'm proud of that. But obviously, you know, we, we had there's limited action we could take. Uh, but I think we, we went as far as we could at the time uh, dealing with the Chinese and and send a message to the communists. But uh, unfortunately, the, the subjugation of Hong Kong continues. and. We weren't able to stop it. Looking at the recent news um, coming out of China, I'd like you to um, to say what you think about these various news stories, such as that the Chinese have bought 50,000 suicide drones from Iran. Um, they only last weekend used water cannon against uh, a, a couple of F Filipino ships in the South China See, um, there's a spy facility being set up on China. Uh, sorry, on Cuba by the Chinese. What does the, what do these kind of um, data points tell you about the about Xi, the Wolf Warrior? Well, what you see with the Chinese, and and look, you, you've got to take them very seriously and very very credibly. I mean, I, I tell people America has never faced a test like we I've seen with the Chinese, and and you make that point just with that partial list of. Uh, malign activity that they're involved in. The Chinese are relentless. They, they operate across every sector in every region of the world, across every every technology sector. Uh, they engage in political warfare. They engage in, in gray zone activities, as they do in the South China Sea with the Philippines and other countries that are uh, attempting to assert their rights. But it, it fundamentally comes down to the idea that the Chinese believe, along with the Russians and the Iranians and there's an, kind of an unholy alliance between the three of them because they all have divergent interests uh, fundamentally. But the one thing they all agree on is that they want to replace the the order that was set up after World War II. They want to replace, uh, you know, what was one time Pax Britannica and then Pax Americana, and they want to replace that with a new a new system of of world governance in which they're at the center, and and they dictate the terms of how the world will function. And and all of these things that you mentioned, whether it's you know 
trying to, to take Philippine territory and, and work in, and, and steal the fisheries and, and the oil and gas in, the, in Vietnam's or the Philippines exclusive economic zones or uh, hurting the, you know, just destroying democracy in Hong Kong or uh, setting up, uh, getting involved in Latin America in a way by supporting the cartels with fentanyl or putting a spy base or I should say rehabbing the old Russian spy base in, in Cuba. Uh, to put pressure on us and to, to divert our attention from the from their region of the world where they're engaged in, in this activity against India or the, or the ASEAN countries and the SCS and the South China Sea and, and want to use activities in our backyard and in Latin America to divert us. All, all of these are, are part of a, a, a fabric or a cloth. Uh, uh, the, the buying of the, the suicide drones from uh, are probably better. You know, they're, they're not people. So that's the, the one-way drones or loiter munitions from uh, uh, Iran, which will they'll use against Taiwan the same way the Russians have used those same drones against Ukraine. Uh, it, it's all part of a fabric that they they, they want to this determine a different way of life for us and 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 in liberty not only in their own region but but control how we live and uh you, you see it it could it, be bad enough that if the chinese communists were only subjugating their own people and, and eliminating free speech in their own country but if you if you're the general manager of the houston rockets and you tweet something about the hong kong protest the chinese threatened to shut down the nba in hong kong and and impose a, a major financial penalty on it a U.S. business, and and unfortunately, the, the NBA instead of standing up to the Chinese and saying, "Well, if you're going to deprive your own people of basketball, that's your problem." Unfortunately, they kowtowed, and we've had this. You know, if if Chinese students in America speak up uh, against the regime, their families are taken hostage or threatened, and uh, Chinese organizations in our country, you know, put pressure on on those who want freedom. So it, it, they're they're extending their their reach. Not to, they're, they're they've developed social credit scores for their own people. But we also, it was reported in the Washington Post that the, the Chinese have dossiers on 50,000 world leaders and and thought leaders. I mean, you've probably got a dossier being in the House of Lords. I, I, I do hope so. I feel rather let, I feel rather um, uh, undervalued if I didn't have uh, it. I guarantee there's Andrew Andrew Roberts file in Beijing and the Ministry of State Security. There's one on me and Pompeo and, and, and others. And they, they, they want to be able to exert their influence, not only to, to, to quash debate and speech in their own country, but they want to extend that uh, around the world. And so it's a very dangerous uh, situation. And it's something that we I, I think the world's waking up to. And I think one of the in addition to the Abraham Accords, I think one of the accomplishments of the Trump administration, especially the, the last year and a half when, when I had something to do with it, and Mike Pompeo was was working hard on it. Uh, was developing a bipartisan consensus that the Communist Party of China was a, a real threat to America and our allies. And, and I think that's something that that has now been taken up even in Europe and uh, folks who are more commercially minded in their dealings with China, that they're, they're starting to realize the, the malign effect of, of the CCP around the world. Um, Matt Pottinger, who you appointed to the National Security Advisory, um, uh, to the NSA, uh, and indeed, who's going to be on this uh, podcast uh, fairly soon, I'm very pleased to say, has said that Taiwan urgently needs to institute conscription. Do you uh, go along with that as well? 
I, I do. And look, Matt's a, a, was a fabulous deputy to me. And uh, in fact, my first meeting with Kissinger, probably a week into being national security advisor, I met with Henry and tried to meet with all my predecessors, uh, including some of your colleagues at Tuver, uh, Secretary Rice and, and General McMaster. Uh, I met with Henry and I, I walked into his apartment. And he said, you know, good job on Pottinger. And, uh, you know, Matt has a tremendous reputation. He's been, uh, he's also had a very career as a journalist, as a Marine, as a Marine intelligence officer, as a, a China expert, spent time on Wall Street. So he brought a lot of tools to the, the table, but it was his expertise on China, which was, you know, incredibly helpful to me as his national security advisor and to the president. And, uh, you know, he, he he's, he's right on the issue of, of it's not just conscri- conscription with China, with Taiwan. They have some conscription, but it's it's relatively uh, benign. I think it's three months of military activity and and training. It's it's been extended to a year and it, it's somewhat narrow in the in the kind of the net of the, the young men that, and women that are brought into the military. That needs to be expanded. But I, I made a, uh, a proposal in The Wall Street Journal after leaving office. That one of the things that the Taiwanese need to do is they need to have shooting clubs, uh, like they have in Eastern Europe and the Baltics and Poland. They need to get there is there's not a gun culture in in the ROC in the Republic of China, Taiwan, of course, and they need to develop a gun culture. They need to have, have shooting ranges where they they teach people how to use AK-47s and uh, Chinese weapons and and use the same munitions that the Chinese will use when they when and if they invade. Uh, so that they've got a, a supply from the enemy of, of the, the munitions they need. If everyone, you know, once the, the Chinese invade, handing out weapons on the street corner to people who are untrained and using them, is, it's too late at that point. But if there was a, you know, there was a territorial defense uh, mentality and, and training it, even civilians in clubs who understood basic gun safety and, and marksmanship, and you think of the, the, Challenges that would pose to the Chinese if they invaded, if they knew that on every street corner uh, there'd be two or three or four people with with AK-47s uh, patrolling their neighborhoods and 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 inter- interdicting Chinese patrols and making uh you know the totalitarian governance of Taiwan after an invasion impossible, you know that would have a real deterrent effect on on the Chinese in my view. But uh, the, the the Taiwanese have to overcome their their aversion to guns and. Uh, and and kind of watch what's happened to Ukraine and, and and get prepared both through conscription but through also civilian territorial defense I think is is very important. Um, presumably, a clash with China is at least possibly going to start with a blockade. Um, do you think that the American Navy is is um, large enough? Uh, do you think that the uh, United States red lines? Are clear enough, and do you believe that, um, in the words of some historians, there's a Thucydidean trap? Um, a re- reference, obviously, to Athens versus Sparta um, in the fifth century BC, where a military clash is is more likely than not. Uh, so, no to the first question that the U.S. Navy is not big enough. I've been an advocate for a 350 plus ship navy for many years, you know, going back to the early 2000s. I don't claim any particular prescience. I was an, an army JAG officer, so I'm not a I'm not a naval person as uh, as Roosevelt or, or Churchill would have referred to each other. But uh, I, I did you know, kind of get get slotted in that role in a, in a campaign back in 2008, and we spent a lot of time looking at the Navy and 
spent a lot of time with with uh, former secretaries like John Lehman, who built up the 600 ship Navy for Ronald Reagan and, and others. Uh, and we, we need a bigger Navy and uh, America is a maritime power. Uh, and without a, a sufficient Navy, the, our, our security is endangered, but so is our allies. So the U S Navy is not big enough to given the, it, it was big enough given the, the old Chinese threat, but the Chinese are building a destroyer every month or two. I mean, it's an incredible act of, uh, of military uh, expansionism that we, we haven't seen since probably the Craig's Marine and the, the Kaiser's attempt to, to build up a German Navy to displace the Royal Navy prior to world war one. We see the Chinese trying to do the same thing with the U S so the, the Navy's not big enough, but I think they're the Biden folks have now acknowledged that we need 380 ships. So that's a hundred more ships than we have now. We're going to have to figure out how to build those in, in shipyards uh, here because we don't have the, the industrial capacity to, to get there. We may have to do some things with allies maybe with South Korea, like the UK has done with the, you know, some of your tankers. Um, so we're going to have to figure out how, how to, how to, how to get to the 380 ships. Uh, number two on the blockade are the red lines um, sufficient. I think the, the biggest concern I've got is that a, a non-kinetic gray zone activity by the Chinese, you know, look in a, a Normandy style amphibious invasion of Taiwan probably leads to an immediate American military response. And, an effective one at that, but it's going to be harder to convince the American people that a blockade, which is an act of war under international law, as you know, would merit the U.S. sinking Chinese ships and escalating uh, to a kinetic uh, response. And then, then the question is, would we, would America and its allies, and that would include Britain and France and, and Japan, the other major naval powers, India, uh, would they escort ships into Taiwan? And and you know the 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 reason blockade is so dangerous to Taiwan is Taiwan's gotten rid of its nuclear power, and it, it has storage facilities for a couple of weeks of oil and gas to power the the entire Taiwanese economy, which is a massive economy and makes all the advanced nanometer you know three and four nanometer chips that we all rely on for military platforms, but also for our dishwashers and uh, and cars. So. If the Chinese choke off the fuel supply, it's not going to last very long. And so a blockade could be very effective. And we're going to have to figure out a way to counter the blockade and message to the, the communists that uh, uh, we, we will counter blockade and we'll, we'll do it effectively and make sure that they can't choke off Taiwan. Uh, and then going to your last question about uh, Athens, Sparta, and the Thucydides uh, trap, which uh, Graham Allison wrote about at Harvard. Look, I, I, I don't think a a clash of the, the rising power and the, the, the established powers is necessarily predetermined. I, I, I believe in peace through strength. I mean, the Romans talked about this, Ronald Reagan perfected it. I think, you know, I think the uh, people who look at historical trends, geopolitical trends, economic trends, demographic trends tend to put all their focus on that. And they don't put enough focus on the choices we make as, as nations and as that our leaders make for good or bad. And I think if the leaders of the free world decide to tell the Chinese that this isn't going to play uh, and that they can they can continue to have commerce and, and be part of the world, but they, they're not going to dominate the world. And they're not going to, uh, you know, uh, change our way of life. And we're, we're strong about that. Look, when you when you look at the balance of power, when you look at Europe and Japan and Oceania with Australia, and New Zealand and America and Canada and and Mexico and North America. I mean, there, there's, and the, you got the Chinese who have no real allies other than North Korea, maybe Pakistan and, 
an unholy alliance with Russia, who they want to steal Siberia from the first chance they get. Uh, you know, that, that uh, you take our side of the table every day, but the only way they can win is if there's a dissension and, and a lack of unity in the free world. And so I, I think the free world can change the outcome and, and avoid a Thucydides trap. Uh, but we have to, you know, put in the effort and roll up our sleeves and, and stand by our values and, and invest in our, our defense and capabilities. And, and that's what will deter the Chinese. Now, um, earlier on, uh, you mentioned South America. Uh, Xi has been to South America 10 times. Uh, recently, there's been $700 billion uh, of uh, Chinese money invested in uh, various uh, sort of nodal points and key industries in South America. And rare earths, of course, is something that they look at both there and in Africa. Does the Monroe Doctrine still apply um, in uh, <laughs> in your hemisphere? Well, it did, and it should again, but right now it's on life support. Uh, you know, the, the the point you make about Chinese activity in South America is a really important one because, look, I think early on the Chinese kind of prodded and poked around in, in Latin America, uh, more as an irritant to us to show us that if we, we stayed engaged in their region in Asia, that they could get engaged in our backyard. And it was, you know, an attempt to, you know, I, I don't think it was a serious attempt to develop alliances or or massive inroads in Latin America. I think that changed and I, I think it expedited during COVID. So yeah, even though there were there are bans on travel uh, during COVID, I made the point of going to Colombia, uh, to Brazil, to Panama, uh, to try and, and strengthen our uh, position in Latin America. I made those personal trips. The president was on the phone with leaders in, in Latin America throughout the COVID pandemic. We tried to make sure we got, uh, supplies and PPE and vaccines to, to Latin America. And we tried to make sure that the uh, relationship with Mexico stayed, you know, on, on a healthy plane, which I think was furthered by the, the revised NAFTA, the USMCA agreement. But it, look, America is blessed by, geogra by geography and, and we've been blessed by our neighbors. And to have China take a major role in Latin America, especially with some of the left-wing governments. And as you mentioned, get the rare earths out of Chile and and the the soy and the the farm products out of out of Brazil, and in turn for that those purchases, you know, try and foist Huawei products on on those countries. They've already got a close relationship with the left wing government in Argentina, so I, I think we have to pay a lot more attention to Latin America as, as America, but also as the UK and Europe. And we we really can't lose Latin America and ignore it. You know, too often it's it's the last thing. It, you know, on the agenda. And this goes to the thing I mentioned, one of the items I mentioned at the outset of our interview, you know, you've got to look as national security advisor, you're driven by the the day-to-day -day crises, like what, what happened in Ukraine today? Was, was there a mass shooting somewhere? Was there a terrorist incident? And those tend to suck the energy out of the room and there's only so much bandwidth. And unfortunately, the, the long-term but important uh, priorities can sometimes get pushed aside. And, and Latin America, I think, falls into that category and, and, and has for many years for the United States. It's something I tried to elevate and President Trump tried to elevate. Uh, but, but we need, you know, there, there's no immediate crisis with the Chinese involvement. I think we still have a cultural affinity with Latin America, uh, geographic affinity. Uh, we've got, you know, demographics where we've got a lot of, of people from every country in Latin America living in America and in the United States and a big diaspora here. So I think our, our ties to Latin America can be, can be strong, but there's also a history of, of imperialism that uh, or uh, alleged imperialism and uh, you know U.S. Uh, high-handedness, and and so we need to make sure we handle our Latin American allies with respect and dignity, and 
but we need to be engaged because if we don't, the Chinese will be. And, uh, and we'll wake up in a world where the Chinese dominate Latin America in our backyard. That'll be a strategic and geopolitical threat for the United States. And we need to make sure that doesn't happen. You mentioned COVID. Uh, what's the latest thinking about, uh, about how it started? Well, look, I think it's clear, and, and everyone says this. I, I, I'm not going to talk about classified information, but there's, there's no question it started in the Wuhan lab, uh, in my view. I, I don't think that it was intentional. Uh, it was probably from sloppy practices. But once it spread, the Chinese covered it up. They do. I, I said at the time uh, it was a Chernobyl-type event because that's the, you know, the communist parties cover up you know these sorts of mistakes. and. Um, Thousands died in, in Wuhan. Uh, the Chinese knew what was happening. They banned travel from Hubei province and Wuhan within China, but then they allowed those folks to travel overseas, thinking that if they, they were going to hit with a, a terrible pandemic, uh, the rest of the world should suffer as well. And then they used the, the pandemic for their wolf warrior diplomacy to try and uh, extort from countries that needed PPE because we we'd outsourced all of our manufacturing to China for ventilators and mask and protective gear, uh, pharmaceutical precursors. They, they tried to, to leverage their position uh, as a, the, the storehouse and the manufacturing giant for those, those items to, to get deals for Huawei and, and, and other, other diplomatic wins for, for China in Africa and Europe and other places. And so you know they, they took advantage of a crisis that they created, that they, they covered up, that they didn't share information and, and the, the heroic Chinese doctors that tried to get the information out to the world were disappeared and the, the information was taken down off the internet. But uh, you know, they, they, they tried to leverage a crisis that, that was their fault uh, to make diplomatic gains. And I think that was just, just wrong. And, uh, and, it's, and you know, it's, it, it wasn't very humane or brotherly when we were facing a pandemic that didn't discriminate against you know, race, religion, and country. And the Chinese tried to, to try to use something that a crisis that was their fault uh, to gain political advantage and, and geopolitical advantage. And I, uh, you know, I think that's something that's somewhat unforgivable. Moving on to Russia and uh, and Ukraine, President Trump has said that he uh, could see a way to ending that war. If you were um, and and do it quickly as well, in his view, if you were national security advisor uh, under him again, how would you go about? trying to do that look it's it's going to be tough uh what we, what we don't want to do is cede the uh the peace process the negotiating to uh the chinese and, and let them be the broker to, that ultimately gets into the war the the united states and europe need to to take the lead uh, when it comes to ukraine or russia i mean they're they're with any negotiation they're carrots and sticks and we've got a lot of sticks that we haven't used against the russians yet we haven't sanctioned the russian federation central bank so they're still trading in oil and gas and extraction materials and agricultural products all over the world. Uh, so, so we, you know, we say, we say they're ha- heavy sanctions and there are to some extent, but they're also half measures because other than trading in oil and gas and, and minerals and agricultural products, I mean, what the heck does Russia sell? I mean, when's, when's the last time, Andrew, you went on Amazon and said, oh, I've got to get that latest thing from Russia. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it hasn't happened. So, the, the, according to one Chinese think tank, uh, Vladimir Putin has increased his personal wealth as a result of the war because of the increase in oil prices, uh, even though they're, they're having to sell them at, sell their oil at somewhat of a discount to get around uh, you know, some customers not wanting to buy Russian oil, but they're still finding ways to sell to the Indians and the Chinese and others. Uh, 
So we, we, we've got some leverage with the Russians. We also, the, the Russians don't have a, uh, a natural alliance with the Chinese. The Chinese have vowed to reverse the century of humiliation and, and get all their territory back. Well, more ter- far more territory than is in Taiwan is in Siberia and Eastern Russia that the Russians took as a result of the 1860 Treaty of Peking. And at some point, the Chinese are going to turn on the Russians and get all that property back or try to. Uh, we've got to let the Russians know that that's so that's, you know, the, the, the alliance with China is not, you know, founded on on long term interests, but is, is an alliance of convenience. And and so so I think we've got some some points we can make with the Russians. Obviously, with the Ukrainians, we shouldn't impose a peace on Ukraine uh, and we shouldn't use our the role as the arsenal of democracy and the supplying them to to encourage them to give concessions. We saw how that ended with Sudetenland and Czechoslovakia. It didn't end very well. And I don't think Putin would be sated if we forced the Ukrainians to uh, to, get, to cede him a bunch of land that he doesn't, he's not entitled to and that Russia's not entitled to because I think that only encourages aggression to against Poland and the Baltics and, and maybe other countries. And so, you know, we, we, we got to support the Ukrainians and, you know, the, the, we can... Again, another level we have against the Russians is the type of equipment that we're prepared to give the Ukrainians. I mean, Britain has been on the on the leading edge of that, getting them some really high tech uh, uh, gear and platforms, and and the U.S. can probably up the game and or at least threaten up up the game for for Ukraine, and that would put pressure on the Russians. But ultimately, you know, as you know, as a military historian and historian, all wars end around a table, and even in an unconditional surrender, they. There are Japanese officials on the deck of the Missouri, or Admiral Donitz is in his, uh, you know, sitting in a in a room signing away the the, the uh, instruments of surrender. In the first Iraq War, they had to, you know, there was a memorandum that uh, Tarek Aziz signed uh, acknowledging Resolution 687 and uh, ending the war. So, uh, even in situations where there's a, a clear victor, you have to end up around a table to come up with the post-war arrangements. And we're going to need to do the same with Ukraine. And how that will look, you know, we'll have, we'll have to see. But I think a, a vigorous U.S. president uh, getting involved in that that process and putting more pressure on the Russians could lead to a uh, uh, a peace deal. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. You were uh, President Trump's fourth and last national security advisor. Um, what was it like working for him? You know, I, I had a very professional relationship with the president. I, I didn't know him before going into his service in his administration as a hostage envoy. Uh, we developed a good relationship and bringing Americans home. And I think that was a President Trump likes metrics and success. And we brought, I think, during his administration, 55 Americans home from countries all over the world. And we did it without paying ransoms and uh, without trading hostage, without trading uh, terrorists or, or, you know, uh, bad actors. Uh, and so, you know, with, with very few concessions, but with a lot of uh, diplomacy and, and, and also a lot of, uh, you know, use of our military to rescue folks, we uh, we had we had good uh, we had a good record. So I, I got to know President Trump through that way. And then as, as national security advisor, uh, I think he took national security very seriously. He was very sober. Uh, he was sobered by the fact that he had a military aide carrying around the plans for nuclear retaliation if there was an attack on the U.S. That's a a very sobering. Uh, position for the president and, and for the national security advisor, for that matter. I, I had the backup set of, of the football in, in a safe in my office. And, uh, you know, you, you, you take these issues seriously. And, uh, you know, he, I think he felt that that was uh, an area where some of the, the things that maybe people didn't like about the president politically, some of the partisanship and that sort of thing, you know, didn't play a role. 
So we, we, we'd sit down and we'd develop strategies on how to promote American interests and how to keep our country safe and, and how to, how to help our allies do the same thing. Even if they, even if our allies sometimes had to be dragged kicking and screaming to, to that conclusion, like the NATO summit where we wrung $400 billion in concessions out of, uh, you know, non-American NATO allies to increase defense spending, but we're seeing the results of that defense spending now. And with the Russia challenge in Ukraine, the ability of, Many countries to have given their surplus Soviet gear or old Soviet gear to the Ukrainians early in the invasion was made possible by the fact they were spending more money on, the, on, on new platforms. So, so I think we, excuse me, it turned out to be right on that front. And uh, and so, so we had a good relationship. It was very cordial, very professional. And uh, and the President Trump can be a very charming guy. I mean, he can be a, a tough guy as well. But uh, but I, I you know I, I had a very positive relationship with him. Tell me, what are you reading at the moment? What history book, which biography are you uh, have you got on your uh, bedside table? Well, so, so I'll flatter you. The, the last year I was National Security Advisor, I didn't get a lot of chance to read, but I, I, get, I get home pretty late at 10, 11 at night. But I, I you know, I, I made it through the, uh, the your Napoleon biography. So that was a, a terrific. Uh, Essential reading for any great decision maker, uh, I think, uh, Robert, you, you, you'll find. But thank you very much for the for the gratuitous plug. But tell me what you're reading right now. You did it right because you know, there's the whole school of thought that, you know, Napoleon was Augustus and, and the great reformer and the father of the EU and all that sort of thing. And on the other side, there's a monster and Hitler and that sort of thing. And so. There's there's not a lot of middle ground on on Napoleon scholarship and, and I think you hit the sweet spot so that was great but uh, right now I've, I've got two books I've just started uh, one is a, a biography of Jim Baker the Secretary of State and former Chief of Staff and Secretary of the Treasury and someone who you and I both know and is a you know great man and was yeah was very kind to, to give me some of his time uh, when I was National Security Advisor to give me his thoughts on how to deal with the Chief of Staff and how to work in the White House and so I appreciated that and so. Uh, Peter Baker wrote a biography of, of him a couple of years ago. I've gone through the first first section of it on his personal life, but he, he's an interesting Washington figure that doesn't get enough, you know, probably attention. He was chief of staff, secretary of the treasury, secretary of state, you know, did all, all the key negotiations at the end of the Cold War and uh, and also did a lot domestically. The, the one job he wanted and never got was national security advisor. So, <laughs> so I, I, I can one up uh, Secretary Baker on that, but he's, he's had an amazing career. And uh, and then I've, I've also just cracked open a, a book by Scott Anderson, Lawrence in Arabia. I mean, for, for a long time, Jeremy Wilson's uh, biography is kind of the, the, the gold standard on, uh, on Lawrence. And uh, so I've, I've just started reading Scott Anderson's book. I, we'll see how it plays out. He's taking a broader view and looking at, at other figures and Lawrence's interaction with, uh, with Americans and Germans and, uh, and others in the region during the time. And, and kind of the, the, the conflict that Lawrence had with uh, winning, winning the war, but also being concerned about the imperialism and, and making sure that the promises made to the Arabs are fulfilled. So I think that'll be an interesting book. But I, I've just started on both those, and we'll, I'll, I'll give you a better review once I finish them. Thank you. Yeah, he's a Lawrence of Arabia is such a fascinating figure. His reputation seems to go up and down with each uh, decade, um, and one can understand why, because of course uh, the issues that we uh, that we uh, face today are not the same ones as the 1950s and 60s. Um, yeah, no, he's a he's a classic bellwether um, uh, figure. And what is your favorite what if? What's your what's the counterfactual that fascinates you? You know, it's it's really, and again, you, the the problem with the counterfactuals is you can per, paint a great picture for your counterfactual of, of you know what the uh, what would happen, but 
you know, mine is what, what happens at the end of World War II if in two cases, one, we pursued the soft underbelly approach to the Churchill advocated in 43 at the Cairo conference. And, and we tried to go over the Alps, which would have probably been a little more difficult than maybe we expected as we saw in the, the, the fighting up in Monte Cassino and going up to the spine of Italy, but, but also going to the Balkans. And I think the idea was, you, you know, one, you, you've lessened the chance of a world war one type, the stalemate in Western Europe on the Western front. But, you you know, Churchill said, we want to join the Russians. Well, I think that was a polite way of saying we want to cut the Russians off and save these historic capitals, you know, save Trieste and save uh, Vienna and, and, and save Prague and, and save Warsaw from the Russians. So in other words, we, we you know, if, if the, the allies had, had gone up to the soft underbelly, cut the Red, Red Army off, uh, surrounded the Nazis and, and then forced to surrender, or obtained a victory and got got the, the unconditional surrender, but did it in a way that the there was a standoff between uh, you know U.S. forces and the Russian forces that would have you know ultimately gobbled up Eastern Europe. So, if you've been if you've been National Security Advisor uh, five years before the post was created, um, uh, Robert, would you have gone with uh, with Churchill's idea? You know, it, it, so it, it's a hard one that, but he continues it in in forty five because in at, at uh, at Yalta, the, the Russians promised. I mean, remember the reason World War II starts is because Russia and Germany divide Poland, and that's the final straw. And, and the UK declares war, and France declares war, uh, and uh, it doesn't go well at the beginning. But the Russians were were knee deep in the partition of Poland with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So we, we basically go into World War II over Poland. I mean, uh, at least in Europe. I mean, in the U.S., it was Pearl Harbor. Only over the only over the Western side. We didn't know until six weeks later that they had done the deal. It was a secret deal, of course. Um, Correct about the uh, eastern side of Poland. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. So Poland, so, so we go to war, we go to war for Poland. The free world goes to war to defend Poland. And then at Yalta, the Russians promised free and fair elections. That's in I think February of, of '45. Yeah. By August of 45 at Potsdam, we've recognized uh, a Russian government in Poland and, and the free and fair elections go out the window with the, the settlement at, at Potsdam. So so the freedom of Poland is, is you know, is, is surrendered. Now, in, in June of 45, uh, Churchill has the, the the at least the British high command, the the uh, his war council come up with plans to. Do, do basically a surprise attack on the Russians and and free Poland. But obviously they can't do it with the Americans. The Americans have no interest at that point in fighting Russia. But yeah. as, as everyone's watching now with the bomb, with with with, Oppen, with the Oppenheimer movie, which is an interesting, interesting movie and it's well worth seeing. We we know at Potsdam, or Truman knows at Potsdam that we've got a monopoly on the bomb. And we, we still are at war with Imperial Japan. And you know we don't know if we're going to have to have a land invasion. We want the Russians to help us. But the, the point is, we've got a monopoly for at least the next four years on the bomb. And, you know, could we have taken freed Poland, freed, freed Czechoslovakia and avoided a Cold War? And, and if we had, you know, Mao probably has no doesn't have the supporting needs for China. China probably stays. I mean, I don't want to say free under Chiang Kai-shek, but it remains in the, the free world's camp. We probably don't have a Korean War. We may not have had a Vietnamese War, but that was, you know, there were some local issues there that were you know, drove that, but you know, the, the whole history of the world changes potentially with a free Poland and free Czechoslovakia. So we, we kind of had two chances. We had the 43 opportunity to go off to the soft underbelly. And then we had the, the, the interrogatory interrogum between, you know, Donitz surrendering and, and Potsdam 
to push the Russians back and we don't do either and, and we end up with a 50-year Cold War. I think that um, the code name that was given by the British High Command for the idea of going to war with Stalin just after the war with Hitler was over, Operation Unthinkable, probably yep. tells you the way that, uh, that they felt about, about uh, trying to undertake that. Um, thank you. Uh, that, that. Was a general, that, that was a general staff uh, exercising some uh, some prudence in, uh, <laughs> in, in naming that operation. That Absolutely. Um Robert O'Brien, 27th uh, National Security Advisor. Thank you very much indeed for coming on Secrets of Statecraft. My, my privilege to be with you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Robert O'Brien. On the next episode of Secrets of Statecraft, I'll be speaking to the China expert, Matt Pottinger, who served in the Trump administration as Senior Director for Asia in the National Security Council. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.